BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Dowsett. And this is The Argument. This week, we talk about the pandemic finish line, vaccines and what comes after, and the prospects for the return of normal life. And then stay tuned after the break for some argument nostalgia and a special announcement. The vaccination push in the United States is accelerating. We're averaging over a million shots per day. Two more vaccines are waiting in the wings. Cases are falling nationwide, probably not from the vaccine yet, but soon enough the impact should be felt. It doesn't seem unreasonable to dream of big dinner parties and far-flung holidays. But nobody knows what the post-vaccine future looks like. Can people who've been vaccinated let down their guard, dine out, go to the theater? Or, as many public health officials have argued, should restrictions stay in place? Stay inside, keep on masking, don't interact with strangers. And if so, till when? So, Michelle, how do you feel about a post-pandemic world? And how close does it feel to you right now? Well, I mean, it feels like it keeps getting further and further out of reach, right? Especially with the nightmare of the new variants. There's public health experts, um, I think, who are frustrated by the public health guidance. I do feel like every time somebody kind of starts saying, oh, once I get the vaccine, I'm going to, you know, whatever they're going to do, you know, have a party. Somebody pops up to say, you're going to keep wearing your mask and social distancing. That's what you're going to do. And (laughs) it really makes me furious. You know, first of all, it does make sense that you can't just like get your vaccine and then sort of go back to normal in a world where Most other people don't have it. I understand that. And I've got to think that the people who are giving this advice understand how hellish this mode of living is. I mean, maybe they don't. You know, the New York Times, we did a piece, Eve Pizer did a piece about people who are finding some sort of consolations in this period and, you know, who feel like their lives have been simplified. I don't, I find that so inconceivable I've never hated anything as much as I hate this. And it's not self-evident to me that it is worth it to try to preserve a life that has been reduced to these narrow parameters. I mean, I feel like a caged rat. And the second that somebody carves out a little escape route, I'm going to run out of it, which means that as soon as I get my vaccine, I mean, the the biggest thing for me is just. Wait, so as soon as you get your vaccine, what what are you going to what are you going to do? I will start seeing my friends and having my kids see their friends. That's what I care about. You know, I mean, I can wait on the rest, but that's the part that I really can't wait on. I've gone through periods throughout this whole thing of seeing people becoming less guarded, more guarded, depending on the case numbers. You know, over the summer, case figures were very low in New York City, and I was having people over to my backyard quite a bit. We've gone through periods of living with other people, you know, kind of being isolated in little pods with other people. And those were the periods that were tolerable. But 
I just, again, I feel like there has to be some clear articulation of when people can go back to a life that is, that is worth living. And that seems to be missing. I don't know. What about you? How are you thinking about it? Well, so you're in Arizona. I'm in New Haven, Connecticut, where it is currently 10 degrees. Maybe it's gotten up to 14 degrees. And it's been interesting because, you know, the pandemic arrived technically last winter, but it actually arrived just as spring was arriving. So we didn't actually have an experience of winter under lockdown last year. Not that we're under lockdown now, but winter under high caseloads, people being extremely careful. So my memories of the spring and summer are, even when caseloads were high, we were, you know, going outside, going to state parks, doing a lot of stuff in the open air. And then over the summer, you know, it became totally reasonable to have backyard barbecues and sort of maintain a certain kind of social existence. And it's been striking to sort of feel that shrink away under cold weather conditions and, and higher case rates. Today, the heating broke in my son's pre-K, um, so he's home. <laughs> and it's actually his birthday, so he's, you know, he gets he gets a home day, so he's he's excited. But I mean, I can't, you know, we've been lucky. We have a school that's that's managed to be open most of the time this fall. I, I can't imagine this kind of sustained cold northeastern winter. The sooner we can get out of this, the better. I do think that this is not sustainable for that much longer. Even, even if it's hard for me to understand what the alternative is, I just, I don't see how people can go on like this indefinitely. But in the end, there will come a point, and I would assume it would come as soon as warm weather arrives, where, you know, we vaccinated a certain share of the population and there's still some combination of media, political and public health people saying restrictions have to stay in place in all these ways and people just stop following them, right? I mean, that, as far as I can tell, that has happened somewhat in California, which they were successful early relative to other parts of the country, but then they've kept on such heavy restrictions that at a certain point people just sort of started ignoring them. I'm not 100% sure that's what happened, but anecdotally, I've heard that a lot from Californians, right? That it was like the heavier lockdown eventually led to a bigger second or third wave, whatever we've been through, because people just started ignoring things completely. Right. And I would say I'm not a sociopath, you know, as long as sort of old people are not vaccinated. <laughs> my my t-shirt and... <laughs> that says I'm not a sociopath is raising a lot of questions already answered by my t-shirt. <laughs> Sorry. Right. But I do think, you know, like once the most vulnerable people are vaccinated, certainly once vaccines are fairly widely available, which you would think would happen in a couple of months. If people say, well, you know, these new variants are going to require an entirely new normal, maybe they will. But again, I just I can't imagine living or expecting my children to live without social lives for another yeah, no, tenth no, I, of their life. I, I think I think that I think that goes away. I, I think that like having people in your home or apartment or outdoor space if you have an outdoor space just stops being a fraught issue, even if you you know might get dirty looks from somebody. It very quickly in warm weather, if 
case rates are down. I think what I'm interested in are like the institutional things, right? I mean, obviously the school closure question that's on every parent's mind. But then even beyond that, in what circumstances is masking expected, required, especially in dense places like New York City? But it, it does seem like, you know, we have we have an example of things sort of going back to normal. Like I, I remember being in Brantford, Connecticut, which is a town, a couple towns over from New Haven, not at all like as like deep red anti-mask, you know, whatever your stereotype would be, a sort of, you know, Southern Connecticut prosperous town in early fall, right? And walking on the main street to get ice cream. And, you know, if you go into the ice cream store, people wear masks, but then you walk by a restaurant at that point and the restaurant just looks normal. Like people are not even wearing masks. Only the wait staff is wearing masks. And this was, you know, this was August or September. I think that kind of normalcy will return to a lot of places pretty quickly. I don't know how fully it returns to like the sort of core, you know, cult of Dr. Anthony Fauci, <laughs> sort of highly educated. Well, I, say, I don't think we should, I don't think we should blame Anthony Fauci, right? I mean, I'm Anthony not, Fauci I, has been I'm not, saying, I'm not blaming, Anthony, no. Anthony Fauci, I think, has been saying you could potentially have a lot of normality by, you know, summer and fall. Yeah. No, Fauci, Fauci-ism, I think, is distinct from Fauci himself. I, I don't really know where this this kind of attitude, which again, I don't think is coming from all public health experts, but is coming from enough of them that you get all these headlines about, don't even think about taking off your mask after you've been vaccinated. And I think that a lot of the anger it generates could be mitigated by just an acknowledgement of how horrible this is for people, right? Like, I'm not kind of being sort of blithe about like, yes, you're going to have to continue social distancing as opposed to, yes, you're going to have to hang on, even though this is excruciating, even though this is miserable. You just have to hang on for a few more months. And again, maybe people's empathy deservedly goes to their colleagues who are in overrun hospitals and, you know, the people who end up in those hospitals. And, you know, there's sort of less empathy for people who are suffering in comfort. And I guess that makes sense. Although there's also something interesting, I think, which is that there's this been this like reversal of the political polarities around mental health. Progressives who traditionally are extremely attentive to trauma and who sort of if somebody claims to be traumatized, to be suffering, you know, sort of psychological devastation are pretty sensitive to that. And, you know, you have a right that's like, you know, suck it up, buttercup. And now all of a sudden you have a right that is constantly talking about people feeling depressed and suicidal. And there's, you know, I understand why progressives are a little bit skeptical of that because, you know, people who have not traditionally been super sensitive to mental health challenges in the past. But then you also have progressives that have sort of adopted a kind of like suck it up attitude about what would have been considered a sort of crushing mental burden in the pre-pandemic world. Well, this is gets to the one actually political question I wanted to bring up before we go to break, which is I'm really curious to sort of find out what happens to the most deranged side of our current politics after the pandemic. Because I think there's no question that the combination of psychological stress that you're describing with living lives 
inside screens, inside virtual worlds to an extent that human beings never have before, is partially responsible for some of the wackiness uh, and worse of the last year, right? Like, obviously, QAnon existed before the pandemic, but I know lots of people who will say, well, my relative just went down this rabbit hole in a big way. And I think even and on the left, too, I'm, you know, the San Francisco school board just voted to rename a bunch of schools in San Francisco, including schools named for, like, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, it's sort of a parody of... <laughs> hyper-progressive, you know... But I mean, that's in, San Francisco. Insanity. That's San Francisco, right? The London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, came out with a statement where she said, well, I don't understand why we're doing this in the middle of a pandemic when we can't even get kids in school, which is, on the one hand, a good question, but part of me just thinks, well, that's why we're doing it, right? This Or why because they're doing it. Because you're not worrying about getting because you're not kind of focused on actually running a school system? Yeah, because you're in these sort of dream worlds, some of which overtook liberal institutions in various ways over over the summer. And I, I just don't know, like, does that stuff just sort of continue after the pandemic? And my hope is that there's a sort of reeling back of both a certain kind of progressive insanity and also the sort of QAnonification. But m- maybe not. But I, I'm, I'm curious what you think. I think that depends on actually escaping from the pandemic, which, again, I mean, I feel like these variants, you know, they come up and I like to think that because the vaccines, you know, seem to protect from serious disease, even if they don't protect from infection, that it's not going to be as much of a sort of perpetual dystopia as I sometimes fear that there really is an exit point. If there is an exit point, I suspect that politics will change pretty substantially, not just because people will no longer be in this extraordinarily miserable kind of existence, but also because I think, and maybe I'm wrong, that there will be a sort of ecstasy after it. I think a lot of people have made the observation that you can now understand a lot better why the Roaring Twenties followed the flu pandemic of 1918. I think that people will be, at least for a while, if they can go out and see each other and resume their normal lives, they'll be elated to do that. And I could imagine a sort of, you know, effervescence after you know, the kind of extraordinary darkness of our politics for the last five years. Well, yeah, that's my, (laughs) that's, that's my hope too. I wonder how much though people have sort of been habituated to modes of thinking that they would not have been habituated to absent the pandemic and to what extent that remains. And I wonder about the role of technology, especially like I never have to be on Zoom again thank God, you know, it's the end? Or is there something where, you know, a lot of businesses are like, oh, you know, Zoom meetings work pretty well and we're doing, you know, where some version of like the hyper online sort of is sustained and also some of its deranging effects are sustained. Like when does the New York Times, what what does the New York Times office culture look like post-pandemic is something that for personal reasons, I, you know, I, I, I wonder about. Well, so, I, see, and I feel like the op, right? Because I never used to go into the office all that much. Well, yeah, I didn't. I didn't and, either. No, we're we're not we're not actually the right people. But now to, I want to. But now I'm like, why didn't I? You know, I'm sure I'll realize that once I start taking the subway to Midtown once again. But in my mind, my life post pandemic is going to be much livelier than my life was pre pandemic. Yeah, I think I've said this before on the show, but my 
my dream of just walking into a coffee shop, (laughs) ordering coffee and sitting down at a table, which is how I worked for, you know, like most of the... I've been fantasizing about going to nightclubs. I'm old. I don't go to nightclubs. I've been to a nightclub in 10 years. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fantasizing. I'm not, I, I have very prosaic fantasies, um, which maybe isn't surprising. All right. Well, let's let's stop there. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the future of this show and also about its past. So stay with us. As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. And we're back. So we've been hinting at this for a while now, but this is actually the last episode of The Argument that Michelle and I will be hosting together. Starting on February 24th, we'll be passing the mantle to our new colleague, Jane Koston. You've heard from Jane. She's been a guest on the show. She's hosted an extra episode. And she joined the Times Opinion section just two months ago from Vox, where she was co-host of the Weeds podcast and a guest host for the Ezra Klein show, which is itself now part of the Times podcasting empire. Jane has reported on the right and conservatism for many years, and she has wide-ranging curiosities and an open mind, which we like to think are the hallmarks of an argument host. So we can't wait to hear what she does next. And we'll be part of it as frequent guests, so you'll still be able to hear us argue with each other, with Jane and with other people. So we really hope you'll keep tuning in. And I think we've both enjoyed, for ourselves, disagreeing and sometimes even agreeing with one another over the past two years. And so we thought we'd just take a minute to talk about what we've learned from the show, from arguing, from each other. Michelle, do you want to start? Well, let's see. I'm not sure what I've learned. We from really the haven't. Show. Let's let's be honest. We've we've learned we've learned nothing. We came to the show with a complete command and understanding of the world. I would say that, like you know, in terms of kind of things that I have come to half agree with you on. Certainly, I think some of the premises of your book, The Decadent Society, not that kind of decadence should be solved by Catholic theocracy. <laughs> Um, That's not the conclusion you know. of the book. It's just it's in between <laughs> the lines, but it's not it's not the formal conclusion. I mean, I tend to think that, you know, the sort of decadence that you write of is, you know, sort of a function of what the kids call late capitalism <laughs> as opposed to sort of spiritual innervation. But I definitely think I've come to agree, you know, kind of reading your book. I def- there was definitely a lot of it that I agreed with, you know, particularly 
the sort of lack of innovation, although I guess there's like a footnote now because we had some, you know, spectacular innovations in the last year. So there's a there is a paperback edition of the book since Michelle is graciously promoting it and it will be out in um, a month and a half that is revised and updated for the post pandemic world and even has a new subtitle. But I was going to say the, the thing that I think that I found most resonant is just the sort of foreclosure of the future as a site of imagination. The fact that people can barely imagine a better future anymore. And when you think back to the kind of role when you write about this, that the future used to play in people's day-to-day imaginative life. Well, I'm glad that that was, that that was persuasive. Um, I mean, I, I've been, you know, forced to concede, I suppose, <laughs> over the course of many, many different arguments that, the Republican Party and American conservatism, which I did not think were in good shape going into the period when we've been doing this show, are in even worse shape than I thought. Um, And I don't think I've come all the way to Donald Trump as a fascist. I'm still holding out some of my views that this whole phenomenon of right-wing populism is weirder and in its own way more decadent than actual fascism. But I think that your righteous denunciations of the worst of Trumpism have worn away my cynicism in various ways, as has Trump's own behavior, especially in the last few months. Well, yeah, I mean, I, as has the putsch, right? Like The riot. The riot. Well, actually, let me ask you this. So an argument that you have made a couple of times was like, there were decent-minded Republicans who were trying to, you know, I guess, let Trump down easy. We're trying to maneuver around him. We're trying to get their own voters to a place where they could accept his loss. Do you still believe that? Oh, yeah. It just, I mean, look, there's there's a reason that Donald Trump ended up inciting a mob of QAnon devotees and voter fraud truthers to march on the Capitol, which is that almost no Republican in any position of authority actually did the crazy things that he was asking them to do, Um, ranging from Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger down in Georgia to, you know, Mike Pence at the actual certification of the electoral vote. Have you changed your views about Josh Hawley? What were my views about Josh Hawley? I think you were pro. I think you thought he was the future, didn't you? (laughs) I thought that Josh Hawley was doing good stuff, yeah. I wouldn't say I thought he was the future because I do. I am actually very cynical about the Republican Party, so I hesit. I've hesitated to like anoint anyone as the future. But yeah, I no. I think Hawley has tarnished himself in a pretty profound way in the last month or so. I think you can see in him, and I wrote about this just like what Trump has done to sort of the populist possibility on the right is sort of absorb it into his own egomania and psychodramas in a way that means that even if you are someone like Hawley, who thinks of yourself as like primarily trying to do policy and come up with the new populist policy agenda after Trump, the things that you think you need to do in order to maintain your Trumpist bona fides will end up overwhelming whatever efforts you make. I mean, I, I, I still think Hawley is a very different case than Ted Cruz, who is a sort of pure creature of a kind of, like, calculated performativity. Whereas I think Hawley has, you know, you can go back to his career before the Senate, the book he wrote about Teddy Roosevelt, all these things. I think he he's always had a specific idea of the kind of conservative populist he wanted to be. It's just 
he ended up facing a choice between doing the right thing and sort of losing scenarios for leading, you know, for <laughs> for being the leader of the totally imaginary now post-Trumpist populist right, and he made the wrong choice. So, we, you know, we've done, we did this show, we were talking in the first segment about how the pandemic changed everything. The pandemic sort of removed normal policy debates from everyday life. You had policy debates that were about pandemic relief bills, vaccinations, the CDC, the FDA, and then and then we got, you know, a certain kind of cultural debate over the summer. But, you know, the first year and a half of the show, we did a lot of, I think, really rigorous policy debates. You know, we did an episode on abortion that weirdly is, I think, basically the only time I've publicly debated abortion in any sustained way in, in 10 years as a pro-life columnist true? at the New York Times. Yeah, nobody nobody wants to talk, nobody wants to do public events about abortion, as far as I can tell. But even, even beyond that specific subject, you know, we did debates on education policy and <laughs> climate change. Well, and that's the hope of the, you know, post-Trump, yes. post-COVID era, right? That people can start having normal political debates again and that politics can return to not like a pre-Trump ground, not like a pre-Trump status quo, but kind of more normal in that you're debating not just constant daily emergency. Yes. And that's I think that's what Jane will do as host, that she will bring in outside voices to have sustained debates, which I think is to the extent that this show has been unique. It's been what has made it unique. And I certainly know when we would do the three or four live shows that we did, we were very grateful for the kind of audience reaction to debate, right? To sort of... Right. No, it's interesting that there's such a hunger for it. And it seems like it's the kind of thing that you can do specifically on a podcast because people, I mean, maybe you're out there, but most people don't hate listen to podcasts because it's just a lot of trouble. It gives you a little bit more kind of ideological freedom than you have in print, just because it's not subject to the same kind of social media dynamics. And certainly much more than you have on cable news, which is the official, it's the official place where people argue. And, you know, I I was a CNN talking head for a while. It was very rare that I walked away from one of those argumentative <laughs> sessions feeling like I had, you know, contributed something to people's deep understanding of an issue. And I think that, you know, at, at its best, this show does that. And so to close things out, we probably should both do a recommendation. So, Michelle, what do you have to recommend to take people's minds off everything? Well, this isn't going to take your mind off anything, but I would recommend if, you know, like me, you are extremely frantic to get the vaccine and, you know, worried that your number isn't going to come up for a few more months, I would recommend joining a clinical trial because there are still some of them out there. I think they're having a harder time recruiting participants as people are able to just get the vaccine. I joined the Johnson & Johnson trial at the end of last year. I would also like to recommend that Johnson & Johnson after they get the emergency authorization for their vaccine, that they start vaccinating trial volunteers. Excellent. So my recommendation is a cheat because we had Michelle Cottle, the other Michelle on the show a few weeks ago, and she recommended um, Babylon Berlin, 
which is a show set in Weimar, Germany in the late 1920s, and I think soon the early 1930s, just before the rise of the Nazis. And it is the best show that I've seen in a long time. It's terrific. It's addictive. It might convince you that America is not like Weimar Berlin, although there are occasional similarities. It's the kind of show where I've become sufficiently invested that when a particular character seemed to die, I was sufficiently upset to immediately like go online and figure out whether they'd actually died, <laughs> which is a ridiculous way to watch a show, but a sign of like actual narrative of investment. Narrative investment. So for the second time, we recommend, I recommend this time, um, Babylon Berlin. Any parting words, Michelle? My other recommendation would be to tune in February 24th to hear Jane's iteration of this show. She's a pro at podcasting, unlike us. So, you know, don't miss it. Thanks for co-hosting with me, Michelle. Yeah, thanks, Ross. And that is our show for the week. The Argument is, as ever, a production of the New York Times Opinion Section. Our team includes Alison Bruzek, Vishaka Darba, Elisa Gutierrez, Phoebe Lett, Isaac Jones, Paula Schumann, Kate Sinclair, and Kathy Tu. Thanks so much for listening. But it doesn't apply to things like like wow. Oh, sorry. So it's it's wop, wop, wop.